Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 57 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Kazmer, and this week we've got all sorts of things to talk about. We've got Pond Beaver, our virtual trade show has been going on, there's been some new downhill bikes spotted, some new cross-country bikes, and more. Last week, we talked about mountain bikes' most important inventions, and this week, we're going to be talking about the trends. This is all inspired by a set of Boone cranks that popped up, these wild-looking aluminum cranks that kind of look like they're maybe from the Jetsons or from the 1950s. And they looked wild, and it's got us thinking about the trends that have come and gone over the years. We got James Smurthwaite. What bike would you put those on? Um, I can't take full credit for this. I saw this in a comment, but I think something like a pole or one of those like um, kind of 3D milled bikes. So you've got just all the grooves everywhere. Yeah. How about you? We got Brian Park here. What would you put him on, Brian? Oh, man. there's. I love that they exist. Um, a spoiler for the for the trends later but um they you got to put them on something ridiculous i i think i th- i think i'd put them on uh, like a uh, 2000s dirt jump hardtail like a balfa minuteman but then i'd take that balfa minuteman and i'd put a crust crust bikes clydesdale like truck fork on the front and a 20 inch front wheel <laughs> and then maybe i don't know like uh, for sure Auri grips salsa qr like period correct ones but then I think maybe one of those Gemini one-piece bar stem combos just to make everybody mad. That's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I'm already angry at you for that. Yeah, Hookworms. That's too oh, much. It hookworms. It needs hookworms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know what I put them on. I put them on one of those. I think, does Starling make a stainless steel full suspension bike? I think they make a polished stainless steel bike. They might. Then I'll put them on that. So it's just like super and bright. And it just won't reflective. match though. I polished aluminum, polished steel. It's just so, ugh. Danger Home's no. upset with you. Yeah. Well, maybe I'd figure something out. Or maybe even just Comments All makes a silver bike. I'd put them on that. It'd be very shiny. If it was sunny, you'd need sunglasses because you'd go blind from the, the reflection. But yeah. Either way, we also are going to be having Richard Cunningham join us again to talk about trends because he's the master of all things mountain bike history related. He's probably started and ended trends in his time. So we'll have him joining in. Let's move on to the news. Yeah, we've all been um, beavering away um, this week at Pond Beaver. uh, And one thing in particular stood out from a new brand called Carbon Air. Um, These are made from coconut shells and sawdust. They they look a bit like volume spacers. Um, They slot into your air spring, but somehow they increase the air volume. All of this, this all sounds quite strange, but definitely not an April Fool's joke. And it's actually designed to make your suspension less progressive. So Kaz, generally people want more progressive suspension. Um, why would someone want this? Uh, yeah, basically kind of gives it a more linear feel. So almost they give it that, and they say more like a coil, a coil fork would feel or a coil shock. So you, yeah, ideally it would give you a little bit more support and less harsh ramp up at the end of the stroke. So for people that are having trouble either using all the travel or just want to make the most of their travel. So Kaz, does that mean in order to get the same like sit at the same seg with a system like this you'd end up needing to run a little bit more pressure right potentially i'd have to dig into more of the graphs and things step stock kind of dissected this but um you know it kind of falls into the same lines as something like that rock shocks megneg or that vorsprung luftkappe is that, how do you say that luftkap yeah, yeah so they kind of avoid making the spring too progressive um so yeah it should i don't know it seems interesting i don't think it's gonna be for everybody but i do think that there's potential and ideally one of these days we'll get one in and kind of see what exactly the effects do it just seems interesting to be putting that into a a system that's designed to use the air the you know like air air springs are 
by nature of progressive, like have a rising rate, um, and then make it not. So it, do those forks maybe not have other things to to control the end of the end of the travel, like yeah, you know, well, if a, you, a coil fork would. It's kind of like if you had a if you had a say had a fork with a larger negative chamber, but then you, you end up running. You can make it super soft off the top, but then it's hard to use to get through the end of the travel basically. Right. So this could kind of help balance that out potentially. Yeah. It's definitely worth checking out Seb's article. He dug into it a little deeper and he put it into words that might be easier to understand, but it's definitely an interesting concept. Um, and yeah, we'll see where it goes. Like the reason they kind of are popping up now is because they had a, from what it sounds like they had some sort of non-compete agreement with Audi. So they are not non-compete, but like Audi had exclusive rights to this technology. And now that that's expired, they're able to branch out into more industries. So they've gone from the car world into the ultra lucrative world of mountain biking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, maybe one of the guys there is a mountain biker or something. I'd be interested to talk to them and see what's going on. But were there any other um, products from Pombi Vids um, that stood out to you guys? I got to say, Kaz, that little synchros tube holder thing that you featured in your randoms video that that is very cool, and it's cheap and it's cheerful and it seems to do a good job. Yeah, exactly. It's super basic, but that's when I wrote that article a couple of months ago. I was like, why doesn't anybody make this? And then some people let me know that it does exist, and I got one to check out, and it, yeah, it does exactly what you want. For the for the people listening, we Kaz wrote an article complaining about how nothing, nobody makes things to bolt into the to bottle mounts under the top, a lot of the new bike's top tubes. And it turns out there are a few things, and more and more every day. I think I saw a press release for another one come in just now. Um this morning so but yeah the synchros one looks great and it's cheap um yeah i guess we also saw a dt announce their dt350 hub upgrade um so you can take if you have a dt swiss hub that just has the normal three pol system uh, like that's typically found there's 370 series hubs you can upgrade that before you had to buy all the parts individually and you kind of were missing a seal once it was all said said and done but this one you can uh it all kind of comes in one kit so you could upgrade your pauled system to use their star ratchet design I think the cooler news here is that their DT 370 hubs, which have kind of been their more uh, entry-level hubs, they're now coming with a ratchet system, with DT star ratchet system, where before they used Pauls, well, now it looks like um, at least some of the 370 hubs have that star ratchet already there. So that's kind of a, uh, a nice feature to see so people won't have to complain as much when they see bikes spec with those 370 hubs. What about you, James? What was your favorite thing from Pond Beaver so far? Um, I really liked the Compatech C Duro. Compatech, they've been making carbon parts for kayaks for the snow industry, and um, they actually make seat tubes for some bike brands as well. Um, they've branched into mountain bikes for the first time. So normally we see additive manufacturing where you get a, a metal uh, lug and you put tubes of various materials into it, but they've um, made both tubes and lugs out of carbon. Um, and they kind of all slot together like a jigsaw piece to create a frame. Um, it's pretty interesting. Um, I think it's pretty early days on the technology, um, but they seem pretty confident in it. They think uh, they think mountain bike needs its Elon Musk moment, and I think they're sort of implying they could be that moment. So, um, yeah. Wait, are you telling me that a new bike brand with a new product thinks that their new product is super, super awesome and paradigm shifting? Yeah, pretty much. I mean... Whoa. <laughs> keep keep your eyes peeled for this one <laughs> it does actually look cool i'm talking shit but it does look quite cool yeah it definitely looks different and that always uh gets me gets me interested so yeah we'll be keeping an eye on that for sure 
So next up, our review this week was on the Antidote Carbon Jack. This is a Polish-made raw carbon enduro bike. It looks like it would be Batman's mountain bike of choice. Uh, Dan Roberts, he's been taking that thing all around Europe for the past few months. Um, Kaz, what can you tell us about this one? Yeah, I mean, kind of hit on the, the looks are really what make it stand out initially. Just pretty wild looking, kind of look, has that supercar look, handmade carbon, made in Poland. Um, they kind of build it as an enduro race bike, but after Dan rode it, he found it kind of be more of that all-rounder, um, not quite as purely race-focused. It's got, you know, you're looking at the geometry, it's a 65-degree head angle, which isn't crazy slack, and the, the seat tube's not crazy steep, but uh, overall, Dan found it to be really quick and precise. He said the, the pedaling efficiency was excellent, um, so kind of a, you know, a boutique bike designed for somebody that wants to do a little bit of everything and have something with looks that stand out. Where's the, what's the suspension system? Uh, it's a, let's see, what do they call it? It's kind of a dual link system. Um, yeah, it looks like the virtual that. pivot is quite high. Yes, yeah, so they call it their FDS suspension design. So, um, yeah, it has, you know, fairly high anti-squat values, so which has, you know, it's going to give it that good pedaling. Can we guess um, what the FDS stands for? S is probably suspension. Is it front derailleur suspension? That must be what it is. drive suspension. Or drive. <laughs> yeah. Fancy driving system, suspension system. I don't know. <laughs> but either way, yeah, they've got their their own thing. Um, this one came with an oil lens coil shock. Um, yeah, Dan liked it. You know, like I said, it's not not really for your just super hard charging enduro racer person, but for someone who wants something a little bit different, it seemed like it would fit the bill. Look, It does look amazing. Yeah, the looks are, are really cool. Okay, moving on. Um, here's something we've been talking about for a while on this podcast, but we finally got a sneak peek of the new Santa Cruz cross-country bike. Santa Cruz has put some serious investment into cross-country racing this off-season and they went up to the Olympics. You may remember they um, increased their sponsorship of um, one of their teams and now got Maxime Marat and Luca Bredeau on board. Uh, but what about the bike itself? Well, the biggest difference we can see from the blur is the lack of any struts extending from the seat stays to the chain stays. This makes us think that it could be a single pivot with flex stays, as we've seen on bikes such as the Epic or the Scott Spark. Kaz, what are the advantages of that flex stay pivot design um, for an XC bike? Uh, for XC bikes, it really just comes down to weight. You know, you're able to get rid of that pivot. And especially with something like uh, Santa Cruz, where they typically use that dual link VPP design, that's not the lightest design out there. So if you're able to get rid of that chunk of aluminum that we join in the seat stays to the uh, to the front triangle, or the uh, sorry, the chain stays to the front triangle, you're able to eliminate that. Um, that could save some weight. And that's kind of always the goal with these cross-country bikes, make them as light and efficient as possible. So, and with a shorter amount of travel, you don't have to worry you know, the, uh, the flex stays work pretty well in that short travel design. I, uh, I would be blown away if it wasn't called the super light. Um, just that design is all about saving weight. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they keep the blur cause it's, it's my guess is that they're in a kind of a different space that existing blur is a little bit more, uh, capable, a little bit rowdier. I, I don't know if, if they do keep both, I'd love to see the blur get an update too. Yeah, maybe it'll be interesting because that almost seems like there'd be too much overlap because then they have the tall boy. But we'll have to kind what's of the tall boy at for travel these days? It's like one twenty, isn't it? Is it one twenty? Yeah, one ten, one twenty. I think. I think we should give out a, an early comment gold to uh, Shred Dash BC, who in the comments of that article said, "My guess is it'll be named after a Santa Cruz free ride bike from the early two thousands. 
I like that. <laughs> Carrying on in the same vein, we also saw a trio of new or maybe modified downhill bikes this week. Uh, Maribor was meant to be, um, I think it was meant to be next weekend. Um, but without that kind of big season kickoff, um, I think we're going to see a lot of these bikes popping up at local races instead. First up is a new Comensal downhill bike that Amory Piron was racing in Spain. The Supreme, that's definitely been a bit of a pack leader for downhill bikes. Since 2016, it probably heralded the, the onset of these high pivot bikes we're now seeing. Um, I think the interesting thing with this one is how secretive Comensal's being, you know. I think we've had four different updates on the Supreme recently, but they've just kind of been out in the open. Um, but with this one, they've got a big fabric wrap on it. You can't see the linkage. You can't see much of the frame at all, to be honest. Um, what we can see is that there's a pivot on the chainstay, potentially a more conventional chain line. Um, that would suggest it's actually a pretty big deviation from the Supreme silhouette that's been so successful. Um what do you guys think we're looking at here? Have you got any guesses? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I mean, it was interesting to see that it used a horse link design because, um, you know, Common saw all of their bikes across the board use a, basically a link-driven single pivot. So that's kind of a big change. And Yeah, I'd be curious what's under that piece of fabric. They might have just decided to ramp up the hype a little bit by putting that out there. It's always, we've seen this done before, you know, people put like a camouflage thing or do some kind of crazy coverings, but um you know, who knows, maybe there's a shock under there that isn't released yet or something like that. But um, yeah, I kind of feel like they would stick with the high pivot though. It's done pretty well for them. Yeah. How how hilarious would it be if the year everybody else comes out with high pivot downhill bikes, they're like, oh, just kidding, back to a four bar. Yeah. It's like the number of high pivots on the market and coming out, it doesn't show any signs of decreasing. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'd be really surprised if it wasn't, but who knows, maybe they got another thing going. Well, I mean, there are... Ooh. A couple other bikes are out there right now with four bar ish high pivots, like the oh, yeah. the, the GT the Norco. Norco, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it's totally possible to still have a to have a horse link with a a high pivot um, design, and yeah, maybe that's what they're doing. Interesting. We also saw um, updates to the Mondraker Summon. Looks like that's going to be uh, in carbon. Whereas it was launched as aluminium only last year. Um, Matt Walker has a new Saracen Mist. Looks like his front end has maybe been made mullet specific. Um, and we also saw a new GT bike raced, but we think that could be a sanction um, that is just being raced at a downhill uh, race. So we'll keep an eye on all of those and potentially a lot of other of these smaller regional races that, that World Cup guys go to. Um, and yeah, we'll be keeping our eye on, on what they're riding and if there's any more new stuff coming out. Um, next up, um, wanted to highlight our buyer's guide on the best clip in trail pedals for 2021. Um, Sarah has been putting in a lot of hours on this one. Um, I think there are about 15 pedals, uh, compared there. There's one thing I wanted to talk about here. We called them clip in, not clipless pedals in the article. Um, I guess it, it makes sense, you know, like people don't really use toe clips anymore, so these pedals might as well be what we call clipping pedals now. Um, is this something we're going to be doing across site in future? Um, I don't think we have to be dogmatic about it. They are clipless, like the history of the, the product, the etymology of the word, it makes sense that they were clipless at the time. But the point of these editors' choice, like buyer's guide, is to help people who, you know, are maybe new to the sport or who are, um, you know, in early in their mountain bike uh, lives they weren't around in the 90s when it made sense to call them clipless in opposition to like toe clips so it's just it is a bit 
easier for them to understand exactly what it is. And so for something like this buyer's guide, where it's just a huge amount of data for people, I just don't want to confuse people. And I think that's why we'll do it that way for these types of things. I'm going to still call them clipless because I like that. And I also like how it makes some people a little bit angry. So for and me, that's I'm, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep calling clipless. And I remember debating whether I should buy clipless pedals or power grip toe straps. So I'm old enough that I can still call them clipless. Which way did you go? I went clipless from Bike Nash Bar. Yeah, it was a package deal. I got the red, like, Welgo. They might not even be Welgo. They might have been knockoffs. And they came with shoes, like these brown shoes. I was so excited. I I also got some mail-order clipless pedals and then immediately switched over to Time Attacks. Oh, yeah, you're smart. Yeah, those were... Well, it wasn't... Thanks. I think that was Tree, Adam from Freedom Bike Shop back in the day, was like, no, you can't have those. You have to ride Time Attacks. It's crazy to think that mail order was actually mail order. Like I had to write stuff down on a piece of paper and put it in the mail so that stuff could come to my house. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> did uh, did she did she get it right, Kaz? I mean, you you were obviously consulted on this on this. Yeah, yeah. I think the top picks ended up being those uh, Shimano XT pedals, which I'd say are definitely standard for no fuss. They work well for a lot of people. Uh, They're definitely the ones that I think most of us on on the t- editorial team would recommend to our friends if they were like an intermediate or up mountain biker asking us what clipless pedals they should buy and if we didn't know anything else about them or their riding style it'd be like probably the drxts yeah exactly it's hard to go wrong there's other options but yeah check out that buyer's guide and it kind of helps break them down for different preferences and what might work for different styles lastly we had the new edit from scottish bmxer chris kyle who's turned his hand to mountain biking He said he wanted to recreate his kaleidoscope edit. That's quite an iconic BMX edit. He wanted to recreate that on dirt. I think he did a pretty good job uh, mixing some sort of North Shore free ride sort of stuff as well. Brian, you're probably the big BMX fan among us. What did you make of this one? Uh, To be honest, I only watched it like in in the sun while I was trying to answer some emails uh right before this and so i haven't been able to like go in and dig in on what exactly everything was I was like oh cool this is cool um i'm chris is so sick on a bike and i like i'm sure i haven't looked at the comments yet but i'm sure there will be some comments about like why isn't he just doing it on a bmx bike if it's easier on a bmx bike or something like that but i love watching like the scale of the things that are possible on a mountain bike instead like for sure some of the things would be easier on a smaller bike but the the ground is rough and he's able to link things together that wouldn't be doable on on other bikes on smaller wheel bikes so i thought he made great use of the train that whoever was building that stuff with him did an amazing job and uh yeah loved it yeah he didn't have teeter-totter in there so (laughs) yeah and there's like a feeble grind on a skinny i don't know if that's what you call it but that's what it looked like wasn't it yeah like like tire slidey thing yeah grind or something yeah Mm. Yeah, some kind of grind. Then the number of like open loops to other things, it's definitely wild stuff. Like, yeah. It's Mike Casimir, cool. dedicated teeter-totter enthusiast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't necessarily like them because they're usually sketchy and they don't work well, but I appreciate when people take the time to make a thing that doesn't make sense. So, yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was Revolution Bike Park. They built the, the trail. So, yeah, good job, those guys. All right. Well, let's do some questions before starting to talk about trends that were good and bad. Um, and this first question comes from Seven Imothy. And he says, if you had to pick, would you rather have a dropper or a rear suspension? Easy, like a dropper, 100%. Like this is just like, would you ride a hardtail or not, right? Like, Yeah, pretty much. 
Um, yeah, I, I rode hardtails um, for ages and still have a hardtail. So I'd, I'd just pick pick dropper and, and no rear suspension. Easy. How about you, Brian? You have a hardtail. Yeah, if I... Yeah, but I have a hardtail for not really Vancouver. If I lived here, like here in Vancouver, I think I would go with rear suspension. If it's my only bike and I have to choose a dropper or rear suspension, I think I'd take rear suspension. I lived for many years with pedaling to the top and dropping my post it's not that bad it's just all the trails here are really like you pedal up for a long time and then you descend for a little bit i think i would go with a dropper i would just live that hardtail life yeah i just huh? like yeah i'm so Bellingham I would just, is a, a bit more rolling terrain i guess but still a lot of yeah i don't i mean i could get off i just don't like getting off my bike so we'll get a you a hydride right, man that's not that's a dropper oh i think that that we could make an exception <laughs> Well, yeah, rear suspension with a height right would be my pick, but I think that <laughs> <laughs> otherwise I'll be hardtail guy on a dropper with a dropper post and be pretty happy. You're just not enough of a purist, Brian. That's your problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are many problems. That might be one of them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next one comes from CMAT17. He says he actually has a few questions. Uh, the first one's for me. He asks, what kind of underwear do I suggest for people who don't wear want to wear a chamois? He's currently destroying his briefs at an alarming rate and isn't keen to keep on wearing his road bib shorts. I don't know what would be this destroying is a question his briefs. It seems I'm unpacking. for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how he's destroying his briefs. But either way, I just recommend I wear a Saks underwear a lot of times. It's kind of expensive, but it's like a, it's a, basically just like a tighter boxer brief. And that keeps everything where it should go. And it's comfy. The seams are in places that don't annoy me. Um, but you don't have to, yeah. I think just something that's synthetic. Don't wear cotton tidy whities and get a comfy seat. A seat is really the key there. So make sure your seat can help you go on rides without a chamois. And, and nine times out of ten, you'll be fine. I, I got given some of those sacks um, at a trade show as well. And they said they're, they're Danny Hart's um, underwear of choice. So if that doesn't sell them too, I don't know what will. <laughs> like that's why I wear them too. I mean, Danny have the same, yeah. same things going on. Yeah. I um, mean, you guys ride super similar too, so exactly yeah, yeah very similar just makes but, sense yeah but there's other companies that have similar things and you could even just get cheaper stuff but just make sure the seams are in good places and uh, i think um there's that my package company that is now called something else beneath or something it's like beneath with a Bethreath? three in there Bethreath. yeah yeah they've got they've got um some super super lightly padded basically just men's underwear with a big pouch and and tiny bit of padding and i haven't tried them yet but we could go real deep in this and I could say all the things. I don't know how deep we want to go under <laughs> our discussion. <laughs> I mean, I think CMAT17 would appreciate your, yeah. your really nitty-gritty thoughts. Well, on. with the Beneath ones, their pouch that they have, it's nice and comfortable, but it's like a little bit too too comfortable and it doesn't give you enough support, basically. Mm. So your stuff's just kind of like hanging free and that's kind of not what you want. You want to not be in the way. So yeah. um, Fair. Seven, seven Mesh actually just came out with a with like a... a it's like a super minimalist chamois that's actually really comfy. It's just like a couple of mils of padding. Yeah. I really like the the couple of mils of padding, like the, um, oh shoot, who does them? Maloya makes them for SQ Lab. Um, and they're like like six mils of padding um, bib shorts and super, yeah, super not intrusive. But then you're in bibs. But anyways, yeah, yeah. see Matt, just do some experimentation, get a good seat. This is way too much talk about underwear and, and what we think. But for me, this axe stuff has been working great. And yeah, we'll move on. Um, next question is for you, Brian. The same guy is asking for the companies that don't size chainstays up or down based on frame size. Which sizes do you think get screwed the most? Which sizes are the ones where the chainstays are designed perfectly for, or is it just some compromises between all sizes? 
oh, I think it's tall people that get screwed the most. Um, yeah, like the uh, short people with their short like, people, long. We've been trying to make chain stays as short as possible forever. Um, and like you can't make a 29er chain stay on a full suspension bike much for, shorter than that sort of 435 ish. Um, and so they have. So, you know, proportionally, I don't, I think that it's the taller folks that have, you know, proportionally, they should be on 450, 460, 480. Who knows? I mean, we haven't even tried that stuff yet. So, um, yeah, I think just be, by the nature of us trying to get everything as short as possible, short people have benefited. Kaz, you disagree? As a tall well, person? I, th I think sometimes you get like, they're short. There's a lot of bikes that are pretty small that have chain stays that are significantly longer than their reach. And I think that's an interesting thing. Like, if you could have a, you have a bike that's like a five or 420 um, reach and then the chain stays are 450, like that seems on, a little bit might be handling stranger than a bike with a short chain stays along front center. Yeah. Well, I would, and somebody, <laughs> like you said recently, there was a, Somebody commented that maybe reach should just be the same as your chainstay length, and that's probably way too simple of a of a solution. Yeah. Um, but I would I would argue that it's you know a a shorter person with a you know a four thirty four forty reach and a four thirty four forty chainstay is probably pretty balanced compared you know, and it's the person who's on a you know I ride I ride like a four fifty reach these days, and I'm happy on a four forty ish chainstay um yeah. you know going down to 430 or 420 is not quite where i want to be for a, for a full suspension so i i think it's probably tall people i could be wrong I mean, yeah i mean i think that it comes down to there's no right answer either like there's nothing wrong with bikes that have a long front center and short rear end if that's what the person's going for like if you want something can slap around a little easier those exist and then if you want something more stable you can get longer chainstay well but i think that's what doesn't exist right now if you're a tall person you like if you're a short person, you can get a bike with proportionally short chain stays or a bike with proportionally long chain stays for your size. But if you're a tall person, you you aren't getting anything anywhere near your reach number. Right. Yeah, that's true. If you're like six foot five, it might be harder. But yeah. there's not as many six foot five riders as there are five foot tall riders. Mm -hmm. I think. Um, let's see. One final question. Same guy. This guy's just getting all the questions this week. He says, regarding footwear, I've noticed that a lot of mountain bike flat pedal shoes have really wide toe boxes for his small feet. Coming from a skiing background, how snug should the shoe fit to get more out of the experience versus a ski boot? Um, you don't need it to be ski boot tight because that's, you know, if you're a good skier, your ski boots are super, super tight. But I'd say more like you would go with an athletic running shoe. So snug, comfortably snug without too much forward, backwards motion. Um, yeah, again, this is kind of kind of come down to trying on a bunch of different options and seeing what works with your foot size. You might want to purchase some aftermarket footbeds potentially, take up some room in there. Um, I have pretty flat feet. A lot of times I need to slide in just like a little spacer underneath the insole to take up the room. Can somebody tell me what, what are the shoes that have really wide toe boxes with lots of extra room? Because I have just like such a huge instep and I never think they're wide enough either. Mm -hmm. I think some of the new specialized shoes have a pretty roomy toe box. Hmm. Um, just kind of depends. And I mean, sometimes it just depends on different models. You know, one comes out and it's super roomy, but I think, I think specialized seems like it would fit somebody with a, a wider foot pretty well. I'll check them out. All right. Well, that wraps up the questions and that brings us into our main discussion, mountain bike trends over the years, which ones were valid and which ones were pretty silly. I think by the end of this, we want to bring at least one trend back. That's the goal. Yeah, there's some things that might have fallen by the wayside. We're going to unearth them and 
get them going again. All right, we've got Richard Cunningham, RC with us now. RC knows everything about every mountain bike ever, pretty much. So he's going to help walk us through some of the trends that came and went over the years. Some of them we miss, some of them we wouldn't mind if they stayed away forever. But how you doing today, RC? <laughs> pretty good. Good to be back. <laughs> we'll kind of go chronological with these trends. So I think we might as well start with bar ends. Those, I think they're kind of like a mid-90s, maybe even early 90s when they first started appearing. Did you ever have bar ends, Brian? Uh, I never had bar ends, but I wanted I wanted some Anza bar ends real bad. Oh, yeah, I had Anza bar ends. I was so proud of them. I had Tytec ones too. They started getting shorter because when they first came out, you had flat bars and then you wanted a better climbing position was how they were built. And so then bar ends started coming out in all kinds of sizes. And then, they, and then eventually people were like, oh, I need shorter ones and shorter ones. And soon they were just these little stubby things. And then riser bars were invented. <laughs> that's how I remember it. What, what, were, what were your first bar ends? Uh... I think they were Anzas, actually. They, I think they were Anzas because those guys were pretty close and they'd come to the shop every once in a while and say, hey, look what we got, you know. But yeah, they were. I still have a bike with, with bar ends, actually, a dual suspension bike. And uh, it, Does it have riser bars and bar ends, it, the unholy it, combination? Well, no, it doesn't have riser bars. It's got straight bars on it. So, But yeah, they were pretty cool. I mean, when when everything looked like a cross-country bike or a or was pretty close to what a road bike looked like. And the, and the front centers were pretty short. If you got out on the on the bar ends, and especially because most of us climbed fire roads and, and then went down the trails, uh, it was awesome. The difference in climbing was just dramatic. So they work great. It's just that once bar, when bars got wider, you know, we're talking about 25-inch, 24-inch wide bars. That's what, 60 right. centimeters? Anyway, it was, they were pretty narrow. So when you got onto the onto the bar ends and just started going uphill. It was great. But remember, the climbs were like two hours was, you know, one hour a climb or two hour climb was kind of like, okay, average back then. So you were in the drops for a long time. You never had to go run for the brakes. So getting to getting back to the brakes turned out to be a problem in a pinch. I think mostly their success was based on that they made your bike look real cool and it signaled to the world that I'm a serious mountain biker. At least that's why I wanted them. <laughs> yeah, they did that too. <laughs> no, they, they also came in after there was the, there was the era of the whole one piece handlebar thing. I think Scott had one. Remember, it was almost like a they called the bull moose. Is that what it was called? A bull moose. Uh, well, no, that was a bull moose bar. Was Tom Ritchie's first handlebar where he just integrated the handlebar and stem. But there was uh, the guy that founded uh, Scott actually made a, a really crazy looking handlebar that looked like a. It actually wrapped around into a semicircle, and uh, yeah. and he was he was one of the guys that kind of like it was like pre bar ends, but bar ends were. You imagine the front centers were pretty short, so when you tried to climb with narrow bars and leaning forward, it, it was pretty awkward. So you could, it moved you out another six inches, and and it made climbing about one gear faster. So when front centers got longer and riser bars hit, suddenly oh, the other thing was. Another reason where they, why they disappeared is I think the UCI may have banned them because in the starts, when you started a big cross-country race, inevitably, there would be like four or five people down because you'd lock. You'd go underneath somebody's handlebars with your bar ends and oh. just crash. So the UCI may have banned them because everybody had them and then the next year, nobody did. And it couldn't be just the fact that they looked bad and uh, riser bars came out at the same time. I think it was there was some legislation in there. 
Yeah. Yeah. 90, it was 97 or 98. I was at the Mount Snow Nationals XC and I ate shit in the start. Like, you know, it's a fire road start on gravel and bumped bars with somebody and just went down and skinned my hands up. And then I was so mad and I'd paid so much money to enter the race. So I had to do the rest of the race just bleeding and off the back. And yeah, so I've, I've knocked. I remember that. So I'm, I'm glad Barons are gone. <laughs> I'm looking at the, like, it looks like maybe it's been modified because right now it says, during mountain bike races, no traditional road handlebars may be used. Clip-on extensions are forbidden, but traditional Barons are authorized. Oh. So that's currently, I believe, the rule. Yeah. Hmm. There's also the crashing thing too. Like, I think there were all the stories of people crashing and putting one through their sternum or whatever. So I think that riser bars came, things started to modify and then disappeared. So... Oh, there was the LP composites. Those were iconic ones too. Um, yeah, they had that yellow, yellow woven carbon. So let's 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 uh, wrap this one up. Should RC? Should we bring them back, or should we leave them in the past? You know, I think I think we should bring them back. I think everybody's forgotten about them long enough. So those little stubby one inch bar ends for uh, cross country, you know, just put them in Nike's mind. You know, get the high schoolers to use them. Bring them back, and it could be a comeback just for cross country. All right. Racing. Gaz, <laughs> what do you think? Uh, I say they can stay away. I don't need Barnes back, they, and they still exist if people really want them. But I don't think you need them at all. So I'm going. I'm glad they're gone. I like that they existed, but I don't miss them. Yeah. I'm happy to leave them in the past too. Well, there's also the fact that if you're running 780s and you've got bar ends on, it's pretty much guaranteed you're going to hook a bush at Mox Chicken or something and be on your yeah. face. So forget <laughs> it. Maybe they should be dead. <laughs> Yeah, that's all I need is looping or coming around a corner loop and you just like keep turning because your bar is wrapped around a tree. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, done with the done with the bar ends. Another trend. Let's see. Moving forward a little bit in time to the early 2000s. It seemed like every bike, every accessory was billed as being able to open a bottle. It was really important that you could open a beer bottle with anything on your bike. Remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, every single niche maker. <laughs> yeah. Every single one of them. RC, did you, are you guilty of this? Did you ever design a bike that had a specific bottle opener? I did not. Salza, I believe Ibis, had dropouts, special mm-hmm. dropouts with mm-hmm. with uh, bottle openers on them. And and yeah, everything. Surly did. Santa Cruz did. Everybody yeah. did. Yeah. And it was crazy because you've always been able to open a bottle with a pair of SPD pedals. Like that's you, just like anything to, on your bike. You can yeah. open a bottle with pretty much any part on your bike, except for maybe right. your grips. Well, that's yeah. the beginning of bro consciousness, though. You know that when yeah. when mountain bikes became synonymous with with a uh, beer, and then it turned into micro brews. Then it, it that's the beginning of bro culture. It wasn't enduro. It was it was beer and bikes. So you had to have an opener. That guy yeah. had to have an opener. <laughs> Yeah. Now you've got to have like they got to find a way to do make like a like an artisanal coffee grinder that on your dropout somehow. <laughs> it's gonna <laughs> happen. Up. Remember when they they handed out <laughs> bottle openers like like business cards? You go to the dealer show, Interbike, and you'd be walking down the aisles. You know, as, as a as a an editor guy, you know, they just, people just throw stuff at you. It's like you're the king. You know, shit. Have this, have that. And I'd have like 20 <laughs> bottle openers. the rest of the year when you just get shit on. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> there has to be some down to pay for the ups. <laughs> but yeah, I'd go home and I'd like throw all my stuff on on my bed and look at all, all the stash that I got. And I have like 10 or 15 bottle openers with different people's names on. I'm like, who? what am I going to do with these things? I'm glad it's over. I missed, yeah. the, I missed the bottle opener swag era, but I definitely got the sock swag era and i'm 
I don't ever need to get another pair of socks that will make my feet smell ever again from a trade show. RC wrote a whole editorial one time about socks, so we've covered that. (laughs) I believe you. (laughs) Yeah, he did. No, he did. (laughs) It was a very good, I remember it still. It was like about purging some of his old socks, and it was like a really touching, nostalgic story, but it's about socks. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. So should we, I think I know the answer to this one. Should we bring back bottle openers on every mountain bike product or should we leave yeah. that in the past yeah. in the I'm past getting rid of those get them out of the toolkits yeah. too what else we get oh let's see colored sidewall tires yeah. brian you had a one. bike this year doesn't one of your bikes have some skin wall tires on it it's got skin walls that's barely colored sidewall like that's a trend that's maybe its own trend that's like comes and goes and it looks good sometimes and it looks horrible sometimes kind of depends i wish that my skin wall tires were a different color skin wall a different skin color yeah you're racist against your tires <laughs> a little bit a little bit yeah but then yeah there were i guess not just in wall ones there was the colored actual color like i had the fire xc pros back in the day same i like those same tires. mountain bike action told me probably mm-hmm. rc told <laughs> yeah. me that i needed fire xc pros probably and so i put some fire xc pros on my giant xcx something or other yep I don't I remember they were, how they performed. I have no idea. I think idea. they were good. In my mind, they were good, but I don't know. I was also little, and I, they just were red and looked kind of aggressive, so I think I liked them. And they said fire. Oh, yeah. So. Well, there's also colored tread, and I mean, the, the probably the worst name for a tire ever had colored tread. It was Amagama. I think Specialized did that. And it's like, mm-hmm. it never worked. And I think that there's some colors that, that just make rubber bad, you know? And gray, silver gray, that's one of them. Red, probably one and two. But I mean, look on the road and you can buy colored color tires in any shade. And maybe uh, the, the gravel people, when they realize that they're actually riding 29ers, are going to bring that trend back to us. They're gonna, they're wanna... I guarantee they already have. They're those green sidewall Michelin. Well, they had the wild, wild grippers back in the day, but I'm pretty sure Michelin has a whole bunch of like modern gravel tires that are green green the, all the, the whole tire is green i i kind of like it i think the green michelin i still it's just still part of the nostalgia in me i would run green if they had the green if they made their downhill or like tougher tires in that green rubber i, I would probably mm-hmm. run those because mm-hmm. it's kind of ugly and i kind of like it <laughs> yeah no fair i think yeah. colored tires were are like one of those those little shrimps that can hibernate for a thousand years. They're going to be with us no matter what. It's just, they're just going to come out of the ground. We're going to have to suffer with colored tires for another yeah. three years. They come, yeah, it hit the BMX world too. They had those like kind of splatter painty, like super bright ones uh-huh. that were floating around. Well, uh, there's some tire startup that has it in mountain biking. Uh, versus, yeah. versus, yeah, versus just did them. Yeah. And I, uh, I can't say that I love the look. Yeah. I'm going to say I approve of it because it it's so polarizing that I like it. So I'm going to say I don't like You're yeah. a disturber, so you like that it riles people up. But yes. So I'm going to go. I'm one of the people vote, yes. that it riles. Okay. So um, in general, yes. color sidewalls, you're a, you're a yes, Kaz? Bring um, them yes. back? Uh-huh. I say RC? no way. Skin walls, yes. Because I think that throwing a bunch of rubber on the side of the tire is a waste of money. They should just make this, the fabric super strong. So I, there's a yeah. there's an engineering reason for skin walls, but there's just a, there you go. <laughs> a dandy reason for Kaz's choice. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dandy. <laughs> but cycling dandy. Kaz is a dandy. It's quite. All right. Well, let's see. Speaking of dandy things, the Azonic love seat has oh, a dandy yes. seat. <laughs> so this is the big saddles for people that don't remember. Early 2000s, kind of free ride era. You, 
Nand downhill era, the bigger the seat, the the more extreme you were, the better. Because you had to have a giant seat for when you're doing these big hucks to flat. So there's that exotic glove seat. We else the Tioga Lounger. Multi-control downhill. STG Big Boy. So these are all giant, really, really ugly looking seats. Like they look like they're stolen from a almost like a moped. Like they're like moped seats you, on mountain bikes. Do you remember when Josh Bender had the custom bike where it looked like it was two Azonic love seats taped together. It just looked like a motorcycle saddle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it had like a 90 degree head tube angle and just for uh-huh. straight plum drops to fly. Yeah, you just land. That way you can land on the seat. It didn't even matter. You didn't have to stand up. And Bender has short legs, so he couldn't stand up super tall. So he might have needed that. <laughs> did, did any of you guys have uh, an Azonic love seat? No. no. You just had to I kind of knew they were silly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, have a, I have a confession. I had both an Azonic love seat. I think it might have been a Tioga. I'm pretty sure it was an Azonic. Anyways, a really big saddle. And I had the Azonic um, stem that went straight up. Oh, Oh, yeah. Was that on your hardtail too? No, I had that on... What did I have that on? I think I had that on the Brody 8-Ball. <laughs> yeah, well, it goes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're a period correct. Like, this is how it's supposed <laughs> yeah. to be. There's rules of what you go with different things. <laughs> well, plus, I think you're allowed, like, two fashion mistakes in your life i mean serious ones like i had an afro yes i did and i wore those like plastic pants super tight yes i did after that and the third one you're banished from society at least yeah. the present I'm one you're pre-ban- in yeah so pre-banish myself right now <laughs> yeah but like the you know who it's like on motorcycles you need to slide forward on the seat to get into the turns you need to get back every once in a while to seat bump to get out of the corners or something but on a bicycle, you don't have 75 horsepower, so you can pretty much go with a tiny seat. But RC, let me explain something to you. Yeah. When you are the sickest dude tra- tracking dirt into the skate park in 2004, <laughs> and you need to throw the most extended no-footers, you want, you want that seat there. Because if you get squirrely <laughs> and you're worried about putting your feet back onto your Brooklyn Machine Works shoulders ah! or pedals... <laughs> <laughs> you just leave them off and yeah. you just hope for the best and your azonic yeah. love seat saves your balls and everything's good yeah it does correlate with the popular tricks at the time like the like the the nothing and the uh yeah and the all that all those tricks go well with those seats <laughs> that's it okay we got a reason <laughs> to bring them back all right if people are going yeah, bigger so you're voting. yeah <laughs> and you yeah, got to protect that, those Brian? things you want them back <laughs> no no my vote is to no. not bring back fat saddles no right. sorry i'm a no on this what do you think rc well i think you know, I didn't think there was ever a good reason for one, but I just learned it today. I mean, what? It goes to show you, I mean, <laughs> there's always room for improvement, right? But I yeah. mean, seats went... I mean, RC's downhill bike of the future. Remember your downhill yeah, bike of the future? It has no seat. Yep. It just it no kind of incorporated into that. Well, I mean, look what happened to, to saddles. They started out huge when mountain biking started out. The big, giant-ass saddles that just drooped when you pound. You just They got horrible. They looked like sad camel saddles after about a month of use and then they got really small like cross-country guys were just basically bdsm saddles and they said they were really comfortable and it's like really okay dude see ya (laughs) you know you can have your stupid little ram horn made out of hard plastic and then they got normal like now saddles are just about the right size but it could go the other way again i mean it's fat small huge small yeah. It could come back. Yeah. 
Yeah, one of my riding buddies works for a saddle company. I'll see if we can get some uh, extra big saddles going. <laughs> see if we can start a trend that we don't want. <laughs> no, no, sir. Just out of spite. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, sir. I just All right, don't can like we, it. Can we talk about? Can we talk about the imp- like the the thing that kicked this whole podcast off? Wild looking cranks, and I feel like this is a a multi generational thing. You know, from the '90s through a lot of the 2000s, there were some really wild looking cranks, and I would say some of them looked so good. Um, like I think we mentioned earlier, the Boone it has these wild looking modern cranks, but they had an, um, he had an amazing twisted crank back in the day. <laughs> what, were, what were your favorites? Yeah. And I think we should, before we go too far and name off all these cool little companies, yeah. these products might've looked good, but lots of them didn't work very well. I would like say the, most of them didn't work Yeah, very most well. of them broke, but they looked great. So we're just going to go purely aesthetics. I wanted, well, the Cook Brothers cranks, those blue ones, super skinny, very flexy, but they looked so good. And then what else was it? Oh, the Kuka. I wanted the Rasta Kuka, Kuka cranks. Those were those two Cook Brothers, and then the Kuka cranks were like, those are my I, jam. I really like the middle burns. I love they had that like elegant little like waist. I don't know, like the whole profile of the, of the middle burns were really sick. I like them. I like the Cook Brothers because they're the first crank that angled out, so you could actually, you know, you didn't have to have the, that click. You know, the square tapered bottom brackets, you start tightening your cranks and they go farther, closer and closer and closer to the axle. At some point, your pedals are <laughs> clicking against your chainstays. So I like those. And they just had, you're right, they had that just perfect look, you know. But then I like the, well, we've already talked about the bullseye cranks, the ones that were all welded up. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just work of art. I I had I had some, I had two sets of them and I just, I just fell in love with them. But, you know, I Kuka, no. Kuku was like, you know, the third generation when somebody comes in and says, oh, yeah, if they can make cranks, so can I. And I'm just going to make the wildest stuff. So they had pinwheel spiders and all these weird, you know, useless little graphic uh, machining type stuff. And I looked at that and I went, that's dad engineering. That's when you're into a sport. Your father doesn't know anything about it. And he sees your bike and he goes, son. I can make you a better crank than that. I'll be back in 15 minutes, you know? And it's just <laughs> like the L-shaped cranks that are supposed to kill the dead spot. They come Hell out yeah. <laughs> every 10 years. You know when the bicycling industry is going to start making mistakes again when somebody holds up an L-shaped crank and says, it removes the dead spot. And you're like, okay, let's go for the <laughs> ride again. <laughs> I got to say that the original turbines looked really good. Yeah. Uh, like the race face turbines looked really good and they actually kind of worked pretty well. They they weren't the weak spot in that system. <laughs> it was the BB. <laughs> I think I think it was race face that started testing and stuff. I mean, originally I think they were just machined machining out stuff and saying it's never broken for us, but I think race face kind of evolved slowly into into the yeah. a modern manufacturer, but that turbine it was it was like one of those designs that kind of stamps time puts a stamp on a time period. From that moment on, uh, even the garage-built cranks started to look right, and they started to work pretty well. So I think that was the turning point. I, w- I will say that in the in in prep for this podcast, Kaz and I were talking about the early race face cranks, and Kaz broke my heart by telling me that the those next cranks weren't actually carbon aluminum like that the carbon wasn't structural, that it was no. just like a sticker. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't structural. It was just carbon was I, cool. Yeah, I wanted I wanna, them so bad. Yeah, like I want to find an old pair and actually, because according to what I could find, Raceface says there's carbon inside the aluminum, 
but I do know that the part that you can see is just like a three mil sticker. And if you pull that off, you just see more aluminum. So I want to find an old set and cut them open and see what they put on the inside. Cause it seems like, silly to wrap carbon with aluminum, but maybe and then they were doing. more carbon sticker on the and inside. Carbon stickers to show that there's carbon inside. So uh, we need to get to the heart of this. Yeah. Other, so yeah. The, there's probably some race face engineer that'll type away and tell us how they were amazing. <laughs> actual <laughs> carbon wrapped with aluminum, but 14 <laughs> year old me will be heartbroken if I find out that that, if that yeah. wasn't structural. Yeah, because but yeah, I just learned that from working in a shop. Like people would bring them in as they were old, and you would kind of like poke at the sticker and peel off. And be like, oh, there's just aluminum under there, but who knows? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a fan of cool looking cranks. I think they could come back. I mean, yeah. those I'd rock those Boone ones. They're pretty. They're polarizing, but I think that they looked cool enough that I'd use it. I just can't imagine them on any good looking bicycle. They're yeah. so they're so ridiculous. They're so bright. Yeah. I don't know. You'd actually actually have. I mean, to... We talked about those those E wings. The E wings. Ooh, they look good. Yeah, you know, E wings are polarizing too. I like them. I think that they look good and clean and nice. Um, and there are some good looking cranks now. There's like those Ingrid cranks you mentioned earlier. Um, those just look good and normal. Um, Cornelius from Intend makes a crank set that I'm pretty sure his entire marketing spiel on it is like there are no good re- like engineering reasons to buy this crank i just didn't like how other cranks looked so i made some that looked nice you should buy them <laughs> yeah which is good i, I like that good. yeah i think while we're talking about cranks we should mention that no one should anodize them they should just make them silver <laughs> I rub, like the way that my feet rub like eventually my xtr cranks are going to look fully silver and i don't like them but for now they're in that in-between stage where they're like really rubbed off in one spot and not in the other so it's it's kind of like a little cool guys club like if you ride a lot your shimano cranks ha- are self self polished that's true i'm also duck footed like so i don't think that helps but yeah well i but lived yeah, i lived cool through two anodizing eras and and it's just you know it's it's a mind blower that you can buy some you could at one time buy a bicycle and have everything color matched you know like completely spoke nipples spokes all your hubs chain everything and you're like well isn't this something that you, that I'm going to like fall off of and it's going to go flipping down the hill into a forest like three or four times a year? It's like there has to be some reality to this. <laughs> and anodized parts were kind of like awesome, but I don't miss them either. Every every time you, you scratch them, well, you're done. I feel like I feel like we missed putting anodized chains specifically because that was like a very specific snapshot in time when everybody I don't remember that chains. What colors? I colored like, chains. I've seen yeah. like cheap like KMC chains that come in colors, but yeah, I never KMC. Knew and I think like Whipperman did a bunch of colored chains in a bunch of different colors. Yeah. It was like, I don't know, maybe it was just regional in my shop, but I felt like I don't know, two thousand five, two thousand six. There was a ton of colored chains. Yeah, there's a bunch of anodized stuff out now. A lot of you know, blues and you know, but it's all like every time I I've, I've got two bikes with anodized stuff on it, so I complain about it, but I've got it. <laughs> You know, well, when blue before we get to anodize, let's <laughs> before we get to anodize, let's let's talk about cranks. Let's let's finish up. Do we? What do we want? Do we want to bring wild looking cranks back, or should we stick with just regular ones that work? I, I I do like that. It's a thing that like small manufacturers can make something that's a little bit different that works well and can kind of like customize your bike. So I'm a fan of different crank options. Me not so much. Such a cop out answer. I I like. <laughs> I mean, you think about it when you're when you're riding your hardest and you're taking the chances. The only thing you're holding on to are the 
your pedals are on the cranks and your hands are on the handlebars. So I'm for conservative handlebars and conservative cranks and all that testing that goes into them. I mean, it's just, you know, I've had, I've broken a lot of stuff, cranks, bottom brackets, pedal spindles and stuff. And I've only been sliced open once and that's enough for me. Twice, I don't want. Mm. When was the yeah. last time you broke a crank? It hasn't been in two decades. It hasn't been in two. Oh, decades. for sure. I've seen. Cr- yeah. Well, no, no, but RC. Oh, no, RC. I haven't broken oh, yeah. a crank in twenty gonna... years, but I have broken cranks, broke. and it's the big surprise. When I was when I was like thirteen, racing BMX, you had to have aluminum crank arms, and I didn't. And um, this kid that was the the hot shot with all the all the new tech at the racetrack had aluminum cranks, and I watched them shear when he came up short. And they sheared long ways, and the spike of it went through his calf. Ooh, Oof. whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I've seen that happen with carbon cranks where they broke in half, like on a, he was hitting a step up, and then so he kind of like blew his feet off, and then that jabbed him in the back of the calf, too. Yeah. But I mean, really, I, I'm saying that I like these custom fancy cranks, but at the end of the day, I would just buy SLX cranks for myself and be totally fine. So <laughs> I've, I'm a hypocrite again. My, my actual bike is like pretty normal and solid. And, RC, what's, do, yeah. what's your like benchmark normal crank for today um i shimano is what i've been riding for a long time but you know shrams i trust shrams cranks you know pretty much but those those are like i said i i, I appreciate the ones that are absolutely <laughs> <All right>. bomb proof <laughs> normal big ass yeah well yeah yeah i've got i've got e-wings so if i want to make them look wild maybe i'll rig up a uh Learn how to do some of that titanium anodizing with nine volt batteries or whatever, Ooh. and you can make them fancy colors. I, I'm afraid you just 3D print your next cranks. <laughs> I'm afraid yeah, of I'm welded not, uh, cranks because there's a human that yeah. puts all the pieces together, and there's a possibility that could be wrong. Whereas if it's forged and and machined and stuff, that's pretty much a bomb proof process. I've got a cool set of cranks here. Those FSA KFX cranks. Have you seen those RC? No. Um, so they announced them like two or three years ago and then they never came out. So I don't know what happened there, but they're, they finally exist in, in the real world. Um, and they're basically like a pole machine. So they machine two halves and glue them together. Um, and I think it's been done before. I think actually FSA may have done that for Cannondale. Yeah. Cannondale. It might be Cannondale IP. Yeah. And they were quite successful. Yeah. Yeah. So this is. Essentially, that take on a modern mountain bike crank, and honestly, it looks amazing. Like, it's got kind of ugly, in my opinion, graphics. But if they took all of that off and just like polished them up, and you, and told me they were like super high end eight hundred dollar cranks, they look it. They look really nice. That's actually a good strategy for a crank because you can put everything in the inside that you need, all the extra material where it, exactly where it needs to be. You don't have to just do, do like a a net mass <laughs> yeah, yeah put it all on the outside so it just catches all the mud perfect yeah all right enough about cranks i think we know where we stand what's next yeah moving on from the cranks but still related single speeds everybody remember the single speed era oh. that was kind of late 90s early 2000s especially in mountain towns like even though it doesn't make as much sense in the mountains i feel like i was living in colorado and single speeds took off like i, I can hear typewriters firing up right now old school typewriters click clacking of people who, when they hear this podcast in three years, writing us letters about how single speeds have never left. 
Oh, no. I mean, they haven't because my buddy Hefe, Hefe Branham, shout out to Hefe. He just won the Arizona Trail 300. On a, he got the single speed record uh, like Ooh. just last month. And he's the toughest, best mountain bike, like endurance person that I know. He's an amazing human, but he's still holding that uh, single speed torch. So yeah, shout out to Hefe. But I will say there's not nearly as many single speeders out there as there once was. So it was a trend that came and went except for some diehards. So Single speed, yes, no. You ever had one, RC? You must have ridden a single speed. Oh yeah, I had a number of them. Of course, I've I've gone through all the trends, but I, I know, yeah, I think a single speed is, is something you should ride once every few years to remember not to to lay off the effing brakes, because if you ride a single speed, you just every time you hit the brakes, you're dead. And so you just learn to stay off of them no matter what. Like you're not sure you can make the corner. Let's see first. Let's see if I can make this. Oh, I made it, you know? And once that gets in your head, when you go back on a regular bike and actually enjoy life again, um, you're f- much faster without putting out any energy. So it's a really good way to learn all your bad habits. But no, it takes years to get your knees back. And when you blow up on a single speed, you're done. You're just like, there's no recourse. You you can't coast very fast. You can't pedal anymore. You're just dead. So forget it. They're not coming back. Well, you back. could walk, except you blew out your knees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and plus, your buddies don't like riding with you. Like, if you show up with a single speed, you're not going to be the slowest or the fastest. You're always going to be in between. So, like, if you're trying to pedal up a hill, you'll probably be going faster than them because you only have one gear that's probably the wrong gear. And then going downhill where you can pedal a little bit, they're going to pass you. So it's a, it doesn't work. But I do... I think if you have more than one bike, having a single speed as like an option, that's fine. But I think as your only bike, you might as well toss some gears on in the back. I this is coming from someone that's done 24-hour race with a single speed. Cross so. punk. I, <laughs> I hate to use the term, but if you have a quiver, I just hate that word. If you have a quiver, then you should have a single speed in it just to have yeah. one. Because, you know, it's nothing like having that basic titanium, nothing on it, you know. It's just your basic tie single speed, just <laughs> kicking around. <laughs> or if you That's live like in Arizona. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, Kaz, I would never have a single speed. Yeah, but and it does make sense speeds, in some places. The only single speed I've ever had was, well, other than BMXs, would be like dirt jump hardtails. And those don't really count either. Yeah, That's a, which is a good use of a single speed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my single speed, I mean, I had the one I rode the most was it was a frame that was supposed to be warrantied because the bottom bracket shell was welded on crooked. So it wouldn't work very well with front derailers, but it turns out it worked fine as a single speed. So the, the rep just made me grind off the serial number off the bottom and I got to keep the frame and then I turned that into my single speed. But yeah, so I, I do appreciate single speeds, but I'm glad that that trend has kind of gone to its own little smaller niche than it used to be. Have you or anybody, anybody here ever had a single speed full suspension? I hate to say it. I've had two. <laughs> I thought I could make it work, but no way. If you're going to ride single speed, you're just going to have to go back in the past to get yourself a hardtail, maybe even a rigid fork. Yeah, I think the Specialized P-Slope is the only single speed full suspension I've ridden, but that's obviously a dirt jumper thing. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so leave them, leave them, please. Yeah, we'll leave them, except for the hardcores. <laughs> and yeah, good job, Hefe. Keep riding your single speed. <laughs> Uh, let's see, moving on from that one, kind of like, yeah, we'll go to the bash guards. Uh, speaking about cranks and bottom brackets, but then there's bash guards. There was a big bash guard era where all of a sudden it seemed like, like in the old days, you used to just use your your third chain ring when you had three chain rings. And that was kind of like your sacrificial chain ring, at least where I lived. And you just use that to kind of grind over logs and things. And that was a whole technique. Like you would 
dig those teeth in and then pedal and use the, the third chain ring to get over logs. And then that was a good way to toast those chain rings. So then bash guards came out. And then soon people came up with more and more elaborate contraptions to save your chain I rings. I think, RC, is this correct? But was the Gervin rock ring the first or one of those early iconic yep. third chain ring bash guards? Yeah, they, they, you could actually, a few early models came with with a little ring around the, the large chain ring as a bash guard, but you know, they just broke. So, but yeah, yeah I think those it were was. Too small. Those weren't like real bash guards. Those were just, yeah. That was it. But you're right. There's, it was a, the, with the, now that we have small rings and stuff, getting over logs is a lot harder because you don't have that just big bump in there. But wasn't it um, E13 that started making the gigantic um, nylon or was it? Um, yeah, the Lexan one. Yeah, it's just, mm-hmm thin underneath the bottom bracket they say you could just smash through everything that's a much better yeah i think i think they yeah they deserve a lot of credit for moving us out of that era but i don't know i kind of i liked well there was the time where everybody had to have the inner and the outer like you had two black spire rings one on the inside one on the outside Mm -hmm. and then just your middle ring that's like you know everything in the cycling industry has that intermediate kind of band-aid fix <laughs> yes that that, that was the mm-hmm. band-aid fix before um uh downhill uh chain guards started incorporating bash guards and the whole bit and then mm-hmm. it was once uh single speeds that ended the whole thing because with a 32 tooth chain ring it's strong enough to take anything the chain's gonna hit first and now we don't even care we don't know how many times we hit our our, our cranks i mean our chain rings and stuff or bottom rackets because mm-hmm. It's it's a non-issue, but I think the progression's over. There's no, there's no reason to have them now that we have. Yeah, I think tiny chain rings. Yeah, I think I do like sometimes that lower taco, that little one that sits under the. That's kind of useful, but you don't really need it though. Again, like I, yeah, I think that the minimalist setup is so much. They figured out how to make the bare minimums work really well, so I don't think you need them. Kaz, what what's the most complicated uh, chain retention device you've ever had? Oh yeah, that would well. We were talking earlier, and we said the Mr. Dirt Gizmo. Mm-hmm. That was the yellow and black thing. That was such a pain. But some of those E13 early ones were a pain, too. I just remember so many different size spacers, and you would never get it work right. I think then, I think they were trying to make the E13 one be the right thing for everybody. Yeah. And, like, fit on every single thing. I had an MRP one that just, I could not keep the bearings on it and keep it quiet and adjusted. And I had I had profile cranks, too. So yeah. <laughs> it was, like, a giant nightmare. Yeah, I used to have one that, like, it was just a lower pulley wheel. I can't remember the company, but it would squeak so bad. It might have been Truvative. Did mm-hmm. they make one? They I, did make one. I, I, I used to just, like, like spit on it to make it quiet or, like, squirt water at it or something. <laughs> Pretty sure I probably peed on it once, too. Like, you'd just be in the middle of a ride and it would just squeak. And it would just, like... <laughs> well, all those, yeah, bas- all those chain guards were horrible. I mean, it's like you get them in a box and it have these, like, cryptic instructions. If you have this size chain ring, use, you know, the A plus B plus C slot. It's just... Uh-huh. And there's thousands of little washers and stuff. And, of course, Loctite had not entered the minds of the cycling world. They were still greasing every single bolt and nut. You know, and, and arguing that Loctite was a bad idea back then. And so the only thing worse than than throwing your chain on a downhill run and having to like you know completely walk down with a wadded up chain was throwing your chain with one of those MRP chain guides on it. Cause now you've got this like Rubik's cube. 
and you, there's no way you can get back on your bike and ride it and everything's just totally bent and stuff and you get back to your car and now you don't you're not your, at your garage you don't have a shop you're in your stupid car or outside with a bike stand between races and you've got thousands of washers on the ground and the pressure's coming up because your race is going to be there in 15 minutes and you can't get your stupid MRP chain guard sorry MRP anyway that's my that's yeah. my rant for the day <laughs> Yeah. I'm stressed just hearing about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And the good news is most things have gotten a lot easier, like MRP and OneUp and a bunch of other companies make like simple, they do what they're supposed to. But so yeah, as far as a trend goes, I don't think we're going to see the full bash cards ever come back, but the little minimalist ones are, are here to stay probably. I think I think if you buy one of those Boone crank sets, Kaz, you have to run, find like a Gervin rock ring to run on the outside. Uh, but oh, I guess one another thing that killed bash guards and things is direct mount chain. Direct rings. mount, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, there's no but spiders he makes a spider. anymore. Boone makes a spider though, so you can do it. I don't want. I don't want that. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> no. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm gonna have a weird bike next year. <laughs> so, everybody, everybody wants to leave it in the past. This yeah. One to bring back. Yeah. Okay. He does. Okay. What about what, drilling think, holes and things? Yeah. That's a good one. There was a very specific era. Yeah, I think. Is that like mid '90s RC? You think that's the timeline's right for the drill? We call it drillium. Back yeah, then. I like think that's everything. Just end up with holes in it to make it lighter. You know, it, that that was such a short period of time because a lot of when I was on the road, everybody drilled the hell out of everything. And then when the purple parts era came, the CNC machines drilled it for you. So we would drill a lot of stuff to just match our CNC cranks or chain rings and all that stuff. But no. That's not coming back because there isn't much material left on anything now. It's all been engineered out. So you drill a hole in your crank, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And carbon doesn't take that well to drill in either. <laughs> Actually, it does. This is a funny story, but there's a guy in Texas that makes um, just beautiful carbon fiber bikes. And he's somebody, some editor, it wasn't me, but it was a very famous editor, was making fun of him for, for, um, you know, saying that you could have a couple cracks in your frame and it's not going to be a big deal. So he just wanted to test it. And he raced this bike, but he drilled, he said quarter inch size holes, but my guess is they're a half inch drill. He drilled three or four half inch holes in his top tube and down tube and raced his bike. And he said, no big deal. The guess the carbon fiber, when it starts to weaken, releases energy into the surrounding fibers and it's they're pretty safe compared if you did that to an aluminum bike you'd be dead if you did it to a steel bike you'd be dead before you got to the store because it just isn't metal can't do that so that's my yeah. funny story uh, but no don't drill carbon yeah no i'm not gonna try i'll believe that guy he's gotten to something but i'm gonna stay keep the drill bits away from my carbon frame Forget it. I'm going to say yes. Bring Drillium back. It looks sick. That's the only reason. Find find engineering ways to make it real. And I don't care if it actually makes things lighter. I just think it looks cool. Nah, I don't like it. I'm going to say I, Like no. also, you know, up in, up in small town, interior British Columbia, we got everything like five years later than the rest of the world. So I feel like I, it was like 2001, 2002. And it was like, for me, it was like, if you free ride, you free ride. And if you don't free ride, you drill your hole, holes in everything. Like, that's what it is. So I realize it's probably a little bit later than the rest of the world had that trend. But I don't know. I just thought it looked sick. Okay. It looked like you were a fast cross-country racer. What did you drill? I didn't drill anything. I, I didn't have anything nice enough to drill. And uh, I, I had a friggin' Brody 8-Ball and then a Banshee Scream. Like, 
Those could have taken the holes. They got you got so much lighter. You could get that thing down to like forty five pounds. <laughs> no, I don't think no amount of holes would have gotten that thing under fifty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, your next bike needs to be a drillium one then. We'll see. Uh, yeah. Or we can just leave it to Danger Holm and his sandpaper. He's yeah. pretty good. Well, that's just he's, it, he's the like, next generation of this. Is, is sandpaper the new drillium? Like, I'm okay with it. Whatever. I like that people are not just buying parts and putting them on bikes. I think that's what I like most about Drillium is that it's a, it's a user, it's a user modification. Yeah. Warranty departments love it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guess what else in that era? Well, purple anno. We should, we should really, it's okay, that we level. can do anodized. Yeah. Let's right. do purple anno. Yeah. Anodized parts. Should they have a comeback? I mean, there's the era where everything was either purple or blue anno. Was there, was there a rivalry RC? Was there like team purple and team blue? Sorry, th- term 3D, team 3D violet and team blue? No, I think that um, purple was was the color because you just don't see purple on anything, right? So when purple anodizing came out, one is, is that for some reason purple is the brightest. It, it's really hard to get a pure color, but purple seems to be great. It just comes out sharp. So Grafton, all those guys, when they... When they started anodizing things purple, it was just instant. Um, yeah, Ringlay. Yeah, or the Ringlay, like, and I oh, think it was yeah. Ringlay and Grafton that brought purple to the world. And for a while, oh my god, it was just, it was crazy. Plus, all the weird colors like orange and yellow and green, they go with, they go good with purple. So, and then Rasta. After purple, it was all the Rasta colors, uh-huh. and that was, I think, <laughs> yeah. the the beginning of the uh, bikes and coffee which was kind of like chill, you know, like you go have coffee, ride your bikes. And then it became bikes and beer. And then that was the beginning of the bro movement. But let's go back to anodizing because that was yeah the, the Rasta yeah. derailers. Like, you know, you could buy a Rasta derailleur from Paul and you could put a Rasta uh, stems. And it was just, excuse me. It's like, just perfect pedaling music for long cross country uphills. And maybe it was a cultural thing. <laughs> uh yeah we, i kind of want a rasta bike now i'm not a big rasta parts colors fan in the modern day but like having a 90s rasta bike that sounds cool too because i always wanted those cranks even though like yeah high school me i don't know i just thought that the rasta cranks were the best things ever and purple and yeah i'm I'm still a fan of anno i don't have like again i'm i think about my bikes and they don't have any anodized anything but i just like it well but, mm. it could be ready for a comeback because you know, mm-hmm. I used to make fun of people in the Northwest because, I mean, you live in this dismal, um, just everything's kind of like dull looking and you're in the shade most of the time. And then the days when it's sunny, you're like, oh, that stuff's really bright. I think I'm going to go in and type. and Or or it, then it's all cloudy and stuff. And you think that what people would be like in Finland and Norway where they, they live in those dismal areas. So they paint their houses like robin's egg blue and and um, and honey colors and bright yellow flower colors and it looks beautiful against the drab horizon but no you guys have like forest green trucks and cars and 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 you dress in like drab ass colors and and you drag the entire mountain bike industry into that mentality so now we have these like our car listen our bikes coming from the guy this coming from the guy who lives in the birthplace of like tribal tattoos white oakley's fluorescent pajama like <laughs> tld friggin eyesore clothing come on mike hammer like, pants for, for your after race wear yeah yeah i had them i had them I, I, 
<laughs> oh, how many fashion faux pas are you up That's to now? That's three. I'm not, I, I just lost the torch. Yeah, yeah. I gotta go. Out of the game. <laughs> so, the, uh, no, I mean, p- the Pacific Northwest has a lot to answer for in terms of like all the flannels and things, but. but. I like flannels. They're it's functional. It's, yeah, yeah Archie's wearing a flannel right now. It's like, I know. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm already clinically depressed because I don't get any sun. But let's let's dress like we're clinically depressed. We might as well wear it, you know. So yeah, I'm saying know. the whole reason for my diatribe is I'm saying we're we're ripe for an anodized comeback because we got to put some color back in our lives, you know. Uh, I'm I'm good with that. I've got. Uh, I remember a few years ago at some fest event. I think the Kamloops Fest, and I looked around and realized like, oh, holy shit. Every single Euro rider here is wearing like black and plaid like flannels. And every North American rider here is trying to look Euro with like all fluorescent. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, and like Super. Adidas jersey and like, oh, yeah. yeah, it was a full role reversal. Pink Oakley's like, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but back to Purple Anno. Uh, I think, I think we're almost at, we're at consensus here. Yeah. Yeah. We could bring, bring it back. back. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say I'm not a fan of when people do Christmas tree bikes. Like too much power is a bad thing. You should not have like hope, per, like one color hub, another color disc brake adapter, another color stem. Like it just gets to be too much. No, I like the, and the I like the, you like that? the highlights where you have the, the orange anodized uh, pivot cap pivot bolt caps on your suspension mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you got a matching stem yep. or maybe matching bars and then you got a yeah, little taste. anodized cap on your on your uh, valve stem that's the right color and maybe just the nipples on your it's just something that that says that I'm not I'm not a robot you know I don't have a mm-hmm. a matte green or black or some Volvo looking color bike with <laughs> and I don't walk around in like you know some sort of fuzzy looking diaper outfit that's just colorless and shapeless i mean you just i want that to end <laughs> i want to have people look like they're happy when they're on bikes not like they're all serious and they just want to be like dull <laughs> i will say that it really bothers me also when people have like they're like okay my highlight color on my bike is yellow so i'm gonna have or like orange is a better one so i'm gonna have one color orange here and it doesn't quite match there and then i'm gonna have orange grips which isn't metallic at all and then i'm gonna have this other part that's painted orange and it's just like ah all the different finishes just kill me that's like a 19 19- that's how you know that every american car in the 1970s you know you get a corvette that's red and the bumper's pink you're like dude yeah. it's came from the factory like that and you paid money for it okay <laughs> like fair enough C- color matching is hard i've worked at a manufacturer i know that yeah the sticker people have it hard but it just kills me all right, so Anno's coming back. Mm-hmm. We've, we've said. So what we'll about see. the other colors? Things should we like bring back splatter paint jobs or all the flames, the topo maps? <laughs> I've never seen any flame paint job look good on anything. I'll say, bikes are yeah. too mm-hmm. small for. Flames. I mean, well, except for Wade Simmons' bike, the Wade Simmons RM7 with the green flames. I will say they did a good job on that, but that's yes. more because of Wade rather than anything else. Yeah. But okay, so. Some flames, oh, but not hardly any at all. And then what about splatter paint? No, nah, I'm not a fan. No, that's that was bad. I, like and I did it. I'm okay with it. I I made a lot of money on splatter painted frames. You know, it's just probably pretty easy, right? So it was so big back then, and then the the manufacturers started to do it, and they were they were like black and white and pink. Remember the um, uh, what was, the, what was the company that was doing it? 
anyway, it was just horrible. Diamondback, that was there it. was a lot of bad. Diamondback paint, went and, yeah. and Nishiki went crazy back then with splatter paint, and it just every time I saw the new models, I like cringed, like oh well, there's something in there's one color in there you'll like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so moving to more recent times, I think we got a James Smurthway isn't here to defend himself, but uh, he sent us a picture of himself with a downhill bike with flat bars. Yeah, and that's that like, was a trend that was it didn't last that long. I'd say maybe like a four year time period. Yeah, two thousand nine to twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Yeah, flat bars like no rise at all. Just suppose you know apparently the front end of the bikes was too high, and you had to get your front end low with the flat bars so you'd be over the front wheel for traction. And then now this year you look and most downhill races are on like 30 mil rise bars. Yeah, and fairly high front ends. Yeah. Um, I, I asked I asked James about it. And I think he, he, he puts the blame on Blanky. So I don't know if we're being fair, fair or not, but apparently Blanky had some flat bars. If that's incorrect, blame James. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty bad because um, I remember riding with him and, and it, I don't know. They felt stiffer too. And it, it can't possibly be true, but maybe it was just because of the riding position. You know, you're just pushing so much so hard on it. But no. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make some uninformed speculation, but when you had like the idea was to keep your weight over the front of the bike and the bikes were three feet too short back then, so like it probably did a good job to move your weight down and more over the front wheel and but now we do that with reaches that aren't silly short. Yeah, exactly. So we don't need it. Yeah, with a short bike and a taller front end, like the flat bar did kind of make sense. But yeah, now there's no need. And bars went, were pretty wide back then. So like, well, I, went and really... looked, I went back and looked at some pink bike articles from 2009. And, uh, and I'm going to call them out. MTB Rider 27, you're getting called out. <laughs> He's probably not 27 <laughs> anymore. Yeah. <laughs> He's commenting on, on, I think it's some Chromag flat downhill bars. And... He's like, 800 millimeter bar, that's way too wide. Personally, not a big fan of flat bars. <laughs> <laughs> he was half right, I guess. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so flat bars, I'm good with keeping those in the past. Yep, keep those back there. What about, we should do, well, we should talk about enduro. Like, there was 2000, I don't know, 15 to 17, 18? Yeah. Like, pretty yeah. much every single thing. It wasn't just in, enduro ready or enduro like made for enduro it was like enduro specific you can't use this for anything else oh, these water bottles enduro specific yeah these gloves enduro specific and everything had to be blue that kind of like mm-hmm. robin's egg blue that was the official color for those years and you know we nowadays we will call bikes enduro bikes by the time Levi and myself were just we would make sure we said enduro race bikes because it hadn't wasn't the term wasn't as well known and just the fact that everything was enduro we're like no that's a type of racing that's not a type of bike where you know hindsight we were kind of we've changed our ways now and we you were wrong. all our, <laughs> yeah well it, we were i guess not wrong but it just we didn't expect it to catch on like it did that as far as the term goes because it is still a silly term when you're saying it's an enduro bike because it's just a mountain bike but that's a whole other topic but yeah those few years every single press release was just enduro 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 and most people at that time in america at least Hadn't even raced, they had never raced an enduro race. It just kind of like the European market, just like here. And then Americans, American marketing people were afraid of getting left behind and like, oh, everything's enduro now. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we have that right now with with e mountain bike. Like Mm -hmm. everything is EMTB specific. Yeah. And it's like, you can't just say, like, oh, these forks are stronger and EMTB approved. Like, 
hey, are, do you ride really hard? These forks are stiffer. You know, it has yeah. to be like, no, no, no. These are our e-mountain bike forks. Over here is our mountain bike forks. Like, yeah, like wow. EMTB. I remember at Eurobike two or three years ago, there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, e-bike protection, like e-bike knee pads and shoulder pads or whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> Do you crash differently at an e-bike? Because I crash pretty much the same on all things. <laughs> <laughs> well, same thing. I mean, it, it, when Enduro became the buzzword for every single editor and every single market, marketeer in the, in the industry, so few people had ever raced in enduro or ridden in enduro or, or even it, it was even related to it that it was truly it was truly marketing by the time and the enduro bikes were real uh everybody realized that enduro was a really hard sport to and there's only a hundred people that are going to get paid to do it so let's just ride our bikes on trail and and have fun <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. exactly so that trend, yeah, I think that trend's gone. I don't think we're going to see it, but we were going to see it with more. Whatever the next buzzword, next thing is, we'll keep seeing that. E-duro? That uh, <laughs> style. Yeah, that's the thing, I guess. <laughs> Specific, though. You're Specific. not allowed to use these hand guards for regular mountain biking. Yeah, they only work for this. For E-enduro. So specific yeah. is the word we want to get rid of. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah that, can go, that can go oh, no. away forever. It's downhill yeah. specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, maybe just oriented. It could just be enduro oriented. Yeah. Or approved, or I don't know. Yeah. Like designed for. Yeah. Fine. That makes sense. All right. That's a lot of trends. Next year is going to look weird if all of our predictions come true. We're going to have some strange things. <laughs> I think we should end it with. I think we should end it with the biggest trend of the mid two thousands, which left and then came back. Mixed wheel bike size bikes. Oh my god. Yeah. That I don't know if, how much of a trend it was at the time. It's just like a few companies did it. And it was a huge trend. I remember reading in. I remember reading in maybe Bike Magazine mid two thousands. An interview with Dangerous Dan and the prediction that all bikes would be twenty four twenty six within a uh, couple of years. I must have missed that. <laughs> yeah, we made twenty four uh, twenty four twenty six was supposed to be like less rolling resistance and faster mm-hmm. into the turns and stuff. But that it was, I mean, like I I look over at this. I'm in my my uh, basement workshop now. I look over at my twenty six inch wheel bikes and they look like BMX bikes compared to Looks all like the other stuff skate. here. Yeah. And it's, you can imagine a 24-inch wheel was just every, they notched into every hole. It was just horrible. But, you know, because I built them, I, I had to come up with reasons that they were great. It's like, you know, but they're not. They were bad. But it's a new paradigm. I and mean, the difference between 27.5 and 29 is close enough to actually uh, become an advantage. So, yeah, it's, it's here to stay. Especially with the enduro, bring with the e-bike crowd. My uh, my, again, my speculation, wild speculation, is that the twenty four twenty six bikes made bikes better, not because the rear wheel was smaller, but because they took the twenty foot high bottom bracket and lowered it a little bit. That's or actually below the axle. Actually, couldn't go. I no, yeah, I possibly. I disagree. I think it was it was bad all all along because the. It was bad all along, but I I feel like your bike got marginally less. It got marginally slacker and with a marginally lower bottom bracket, and so it made yeah. it feel slightly less horrible. But they were designed around twenty four inch rear wheel. It wasn't no, like they you weren't. Broke they just told yes, you they, they were. were. Yeah, that Cannondale has a very high bottom bracket. The Cannondale that has a twenty four inch <laughs> rear wheel it has a very high bottom bracket. That I might remember. be true. It's true. You yeah, can't put true. a twenty four inch <laughs> wheel on a twenty six inch bike without just putting the cranks on the ground. I know this because I I made them. But the the the, the bottom bracket has to be 
at or below the axles to make a bicycle stable. Mm -hmm. And that's what mm -hmm. 29 and 27.5 did. The, the magic of that whole thing is it put the axle, the bottom bracket axle below the wheel axles. And 24, like 26 was twice as bad as just 26, 26. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So basically we're in the third wave now. They had 24, 26, and then there was like the second generation, 24, 26, like the big hit era, kind of more the free riding thing. Then you got some of the mixed, like 29-inch front wheel, 26-inch rear wheel from um, Maverick. I feel like you've got to put some more respect track. on the big hit. Come on. Uh-uh. It was fine. I think just because I've worked on so many clapped-out big hits, I don't respect them that much because everyone that came in the shop was just like it's totally iconic. destroyed. Yeah. I, Has there ever been a bike that's been more clapped out every time it comes <laughs> into the shop? No. They I must don't. have sold so many of those. So many. Things. My buddy had one that he spray painted. It was called the Stallion. He would just bring it in. And the Stallion, he was in high school at the time. Now I ride him. He's not in high school. But it was, a, I still remember that bike. Yeah. Just, I don't really have a soft spot for big hits, but they did have a mixed wheel back in the day. They probably sold so many of them. But now I think, yeah, like RC was saying, I think they make sense for e-bikes and even for some other bikes, just for your more general, have fun, goof around bike. I think it's. And small people. Exactly, too. It helps uh, address some fit issues that you get with a dual 29-inch rear uh, bike. So, <laughs> so let's end. Let's end this one. Are are uh, are we bringing or are we happy that mixed wheels are here? Yeah, they're not going to. I wouldn't say there's going to be a wholesale takeover at all. It's not going to happen. But I think you'll see them kind of sit in. You're going to see more of them, but they're not going to be. It's going to be a mix of uh, both wheel sizes. I think it makes the sense. That's a dual 27.5. I think it makes sense now. But like Kaz said, you know, there's there's reasons to not do it, but we haven't explored the reasons to do it now that we actually have something that's useful and has, has proven to be an advantage. All the other ones were experiments and people saying it was going to be a great idea, but not really riding it enough to realize it sucked. Well, I, I disagree. I half agree with you, Kaz, and I half disagree. I agree with the death of the dual 27.5 bike. That seems fairly likely, but do you think that if if and when we get a 32 that we you won't have 29 hey man big big 32 inch wheel 32 wheel uh cabal is paying my bills so i know they are yeah <laughs> uh yeah i don't know what's gonna happen i'm just ignoring but, but 32. Like, do you think like if it if it was available do you think more bikes would be 29 32 for the bigger sizes i just don't think it's gonna catch on i'm gonna stick yeah. with being potentially so you think wrong, it'll be 29 29 and 29 yeah. 70 27 5 yeah yeah i mean i'm happy for me it's per I'm, i don't wouldn't ever need anything bigger than a 29 inch i feel like that's a statement that's going to come back and bite me in the ass isn't it <laughs> it's bit me in the ass i, I don't know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i've been wrong on wheel sizes over and over again <laughs> yeah i just don't want to talk about it because if you say it then it might come true so if i just ignore it, that <laughs> yeah could it i feel like that's your thing. your fear for sure yeah but uh yeah, either way, for this year and the next few years, foreseeable future, uh, those mixed wheel size bikes aren't going anywhere. We're going to see more of them, just like we'll see more uh, dual 29-inch wheel bikes. So, yeah. All right. That was a lot of That's a throw lot of trends. going back to trends. So trends are a thing. Trending. Uh, I guess, oh, yeah, we got to do some comment gold before we totally wrap this up. So we'll start with, let's see. Oh, this one is from KCY4130, who might be our number one comment commenter Very much sorry yeah. kcy 4130 we're gonna have to like dial it back with you <laughs> yeah you make you've won this like, so many times yeah you're getting too good <laughs> it's probably a robot somebody's it's probably some kind of like artificial intelligence thing just commenting but either way he is commenting um in regards to Omri piron's covered up comments all had that kind of fabric wrap around it he says 
plot twist, it's a high pivot hardtail. <laughs> uh, that's funny <laughs> which would be funny if they pulled it off it's just um, yeah. do you remember a few years ago when they Microsoft made that AI and then f- showed it to Twitter and then within like seven hours it was like it was like tweeting a, about Hitler like, and stuff yeah it was like a racist automaton it was amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it, what would happen if you fed if you fed an AI the pink bite comments Oh, nothing good. <laughs> I feel like it's be, the end of civilization. I think so. A black hole would happen and there'd just be some kind of weird, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but uh, I guess we got a few more comments that were pretty good this week. There's from Tanner Valhuli, and it's, he was actually quoting you, RC. RC. In the last week's podcast, he said, our asses can take a lot of pounding. And he was really impressed. He says that's the best quote from the Pink Bike podcast yet. So that was a pretty good quote. I thought that should have been the title of last week's podcast, but we had a different title. <laughs> Oops! And then, uh, I'm yeah. going down and, and there's plane, another one. Feel it? Yeah, it was a good uh, one. It's all right. <laughs> and then the next one comes from uh, David Robinson. Photo. He's talking about a picture of a weird Seattle bike from a number of years ago. It had just all kinds of cables coming out of the head tube. It might have, I can't remember what they were for, but either way, um, he says the head tube says Trek, but the cable says Scott. <laughs> the, <laughs> that might be the good. gold for today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you remember? There's one trend that can stay away is the colored cable housing. Stay oh, yeah. away. I'm not a fan. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then, yeah, the final final quote kind of fits with some of the things we talked about. This comes from Plastercaster, and he commented, sometimes when people think outside the box, it reminds you of why the box is there in the first place. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of draws it to a close. <laughs> I think that'll wrap it up. That's our focus on trends good ones, bad ones, weird ones. Let us know in the comments what trends we missed or if there's a new trend you're trying to start. See if you can get that to go. Um, As always, thanks for joining us, RC. Always good to talk with you. And thanks, Brian. And we'll talk to everybody next week. Cheers. Bye. Bye.